Hi, and welcome to Third Waves. Third is a platform that amplifies underrepresented voices through print, events, and on the airwaves. On the show, we interrogate the intersections of culture and activism, bringing you interviews and discussions with guests who have knowledge and lived experience to share. I am Rona, stylist, creative director, and founder of Third. And I'm Tribe, DJ and co-host and music editor at Third. And I'm Daniela. I'm a writer, musician, and producer at Third. On this episode, we will be talking about the state of unrest between the police and people all over the world, with a special focus on how the viral NSARS hashtag has helped galvanise people to demand justice for the people of Nigeria. Talking to us about some of these issues is Choma Aguebo, whether it is chaperoning young first-time women politicians, co-creating solutions for sexual and gender-based violence, or creating sessions on digital security. Choma believes that technology not applied is not useful. Choma's foray into advocacy began with the Light Up Nigeria movement in 2008. Since then, she has functioned in leadership teams for campaigns such as Enough is Enough, Gen Voices, Occupy Nigeria, Bring Back Our Girls, Not Too Young to Run, and now State of Emergency GBV. This episode features a new special audio project from Tribe, which is only available in the radio edit on Soho Radio's Culture Channel and on Mixcloud. Find it by searching Third Waves, that's third with three eyes, on Mixcloud. This project features a whole range of audio material from interviews to documentary extracts. Head to our website on Mixcloud for a full list of the sources. Um, so Tribe, why did you decide to make that mix? I made the mix because I was inspired uh, by everything that was going on in Nigeria. And as being someone who is based in the UK, it gave me a moment of reflection on my relationship to my heritage as a Nigerian and a way to kind of also amplify the voices and the perspective of Nigerians at the present time. This is a a very important topic, and I think the more that people are aware of what's going on, uh, a lot of people were saying that, you know, the Nigerian government might not listen to the voices of the people on the ground, but they do care about the international attention that it's getting and the perspective and the prospective effects that it might have on international trade. So by amplifying people's voices and amplifying what's happening, it lends itself and lends weight to the actual movement itself. Uh, So that was the reason that it motivated me to do it. So obviously SARS stands for the Special Anti-Robbery Squad, and it originated in Nigeria in the 90s. And I think it was a reaction to 
armed robberies, which were happening quite a lot. So they set up this special unit and it was a unit which was devised um, to be like an incognito arm of the police. So everyone wore like normal clothes and their main purpose was to discover intelligence. They didn't carry guns or weapons at that point. And they were specifically supposed to be like a sort of intelligence gathering unit, which was about stopping these armed robberies. But I think what SARS later became was still a unit in the police. They were given the right to carry arms. And a lot of them use this as an opportunity to abuse their powers and harass citizens, basically. That is the experience of SARS that people are reacting against. And what sparked off this movement was the killing and shooting of a young man in the Delta State area by SARS police. And I think this was filmed and that led to a wave of protests around the country where people were just, you know, demanding the fact that they've they've had enough and they need SARS to end. So in terms of the timeline, it sort of feels like what the the uproar that's happening in the US around the Black Lives Matter movement was a precursor to what then became the NSARS movement gaining momentum globally too. Because I know there's an NSARS UK, for example, like there's protests in other places other than Nigeria for it. In terms of the timeline, obviously this summer, we have seen the sort of Black Lives Matter movement take off uh, because of the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Tony McDargy, as well as a number of other people. What is notable about the Black Lives Matter movement and the NSARS movement is that hashtags have been used to galvanise support and to really raise people's consciousness to what is happening because actually NSARS was a... um, The movement to NSARS has been going on I believe, for a very long time. But it was really through the recording of the killing of this young man in Delta that people were really forced out of their homes and onto the streets, really, to protest against SARS and to demand it be disbanded. From my understanding, this movement, as you say, Rona, um, is is definitely not something that's started um, in the summer. It's been going on for a very long time, and I also understand that, like, they there seems to be a a, a strategy of rebranding or renaming the the special unit in order to look like it's being addressed. So, as Rona said, based on the death of the young man in Delta State, it kind of caused a a reverberation of people's response to a lot of corruption in Nigeria. It led to a lot of people kind of saying enough is enough. Um, So it's what started off as a hashtag has now kind of expanded to people actually hitting the streets in masses and protesting. Uh, and And I think you're right, there is definitely a connection with what's happening with the US and the um, police brutality that has kind of escalated, not escalated, but has been exposed more so there. Uh, I think a lot of people feel like it's not just a black issue in the sense of, you know, white cops against black people. It's also about the way that we govern people in general uh, and the question of, you know, how we treat people in those positions. 
So I think it's led itself to kind of expanding the conversation internationally and for people to be able to kind of reflect on how people in their own countries are treated by the police. So I think it, there is definitely a connection within the movement. And I guess also from taking it off of Twitter to actual protest on the streets. Mm. I would also say that I just think people are so exhausted and tired at seeing black bodies in particular treated severely poorly by the police you know I think people are just tired of seeing the same sort of things you know and it's been a summer of being able to witness things just because we have our phones at hand and stuff like that for anyone seeing that happen to people over and over and over again and also just having you know your own connection to those experiences so you have to remember like a lot of young people are leading this movement to end SARS in Nigeria. And the reason why they're doing that is because they have negative experiences with the police there, you know, and yet not all of them has have ended up in death, thankfully, but they're negative enough that they have really strong negative feelings towards the police because of this. And so, yeah, I think it's really important not to underestimate just the, the impact of having to be exposed to that constantly. And yeah, it started off in America, but I think also being a Nigerian myself, I would say the sort of slogan that they've used in NSARS that's become quite a prominent one is Sorosoke. So it's speak up in Yoruba. I would say like culturally, you know, Nigerian people, when it comes to things like corruption, we've, you know, protesting is not second nature to us, I would say. So it's great to see this moment and this level of angst against um, what is happening is definitely a byproduct of what we've already seen happen globally. I agree. With a lot of people, they were saying um, from the news reports, you know, people's commentaries and, you know, the way that people have been feeling, it's stuff that's happened for generations, but people feel annoyed that, I guess, the previous generations have kind of kept quiet and you know, where corruption is seen, but just you, you kind of accept it and become complacent. Like that's just the way Nigeria is. And I think some of it has its roots, you know, can be connected to the colonialism and the, the force and the treatment of everyday citizens by officials. You know, that dynamic has been ingrained for a very long time. And it's taken, I guess, now the levy is broken in the sense of people going enough is enough. It's just unfortunate because a lot of the people that are being targeted, as they say, Yahoo boys who are um, entrepreneurial or young people who are the emerging middle class who are actually, you know, really elevating the economy of Nigeria, but are being targeted because they stand out from let's say some of the people who are who are disadvantaged there and it's kind of presumed that they don't have they shouldn't have money or why should they have money so um it's the voices that are coming forward uh, a particular demographic who are standing up the young generation that's coming through but also recognizing the the legacy that has continued from the colonial area um onto today uh, and trying to break that connection trying to say you know that if we're going to have a democratic state let's have a dem- democratic state let's stop with this corruption and i don't think this movement ends at sars it speaks to a wider frustration with corruption within nigeria uh and 
um, the frustration in the sense of like, you know, a country that's very resourceful, especially with natural resources like oil. Um, and I think uh, since um, 1960, it's independence. You know, the country's lost $400 billion in oil corruption. So it's not even just NSAR specifically, but it speaks to a wider frustration to corruption in general in the country. Uh, and NSARS, I think, is one of the areas of which kind of was m- most prominent. Just to add there, I would say that one of the effects of NSARS has also been about making this conversation quite global. And I think this year that has been a major outcome, I think, globally, is that people who have never had to maybe think about police corruption, uh, police br- brutality are being face with it and being asked to acknowledge it. I think it's so interesting to bring in this topic of money. We, we talk about economic freedom going hand in hand with other types of freedoms. And I think this topic of like where the money is or where the com- corruption happens is so fascinating. One of the demands of the movement is actually to increase the salary of policemen so that they are less susceptible to corruption as one of the ways of dissuading them from extortion or combating this overall problem of individual police officers abusing their power by demanding bribes. So tying it into this whole discussion around defunding the police, I think one thing that I found illuminating was a whole defund the police concept is about the disproportionate money that goes towards training and arming and the money can be put into other social services or other, you know, like, you know, funding education or arts programs or et cetera, et cetera. All of this sort of, I feel like, wraps into how the economic forces behind these things or the money behind these things drive some of these problems and could be a way of helping it. Yeah, so a lot of people, as we know, in the US and in within Nigeria are talking about defunding the police and it might sound scary on the, from the outside, but like you said, um, Daniela, it is about more putting money towards preventative measures rather than, um, you know, the impact afterwards. So if there was more funding towards, let's say in the UK, they talk about mental health being one of the things, you know, the victims of, you know, police violence in this country and in the US as well. If there was more money allocated to those kind of pots as opposed to um, the police or like uh, I might be blowing my own horn here, but, you know, social workers or other community groups that have been defunded, actually, since especially particularly since the recession, to put money towards that, you know, youth centres, then there would be places that are specifically specialised in helping those people who are in need or who actually need the help, as opposed to just kind of throwing the police at every particular situation. So it it's not a crazy idea. And when we think about it in terms of a, a, a fair and just society, it's one that should definitely be looked at. The thing to understand, though, is with this question of money and the police, but because in the US, what we seem to be asking for is like a defunding of the police. And I think it definitely looks very necessary there. But in Nigeria, we are asking for like an actual funding, a fair funding of the police. So they don't, well, definitely the disbanding of SARS, but funding for the police so that they don't have to rely on things like bribes. I think it's really important to note that it's not a one solution suits all. And I think sometimes also when we talk about defunding the police, the reason why some people get so much resistance to it is because there's this 
this idea that it is just a one-way solution to things. But actually, I think actually it's a bit more, it's way more intricate than that. With what we've said about what defunding the police is essentially about, it's about deciding what will actually have the biggest stake in levels of criminal activity and the protection of the public as a whole. People sometimes get a bit afraid when you talk about defunding the police. And I think actually people should just be open to thinking about what it would look like. I think you're right um, in a sense of it's not one size fit all. But I think when you go take a step back and look at one of the reasons why uh, SARS was implemented in the first place was because of bribery and all those kind of things. So, you know, like how Nigeria's gotten the reputation for 419 and, you know, um, I am a prince emails, you know, please send me money kind of thing. If there was uh, a fairer society that lent itself for less of that. So, for example, I think... Um, Nigeria has actually taken the crown for the most people in poverty. It's taken it off of India as of like 2016 or something. So it's not that the country doesn't have wealth. It's more that the way that the wealth is distributed, the way that the um, the corruption has seeped through society. That's the re- very reason why SARS was seen at the time as essential. You know, it had to be set up. So on one hand, we do need an increase in salary and fair wages for fair work needs to be in um, different social uh, organizations to actually help those who are in poverty and for there to be a genuine ability for upward mobility for those who are skilled you know though, though, so that people who are you know are born in poverty don't just die in poverty regardless of their skills but also looking at corruption and overall because who's to say that you know that um incremental increase to the police officers doesn't stop them from continuing to be corrupt a more uh, just and less brutal legal system, you know, where people actually get trialed for doing wrong. You know, all these things kind of go hand in hand. So I think, as you said, there's got to be a nuance and then more protection of the vulnerable in the society. I think I would definitely want to, at this moment, point out that, like, the SARS special force under the branding the name of SARS has been disbanded mm-hmm. but as the times that it's happened before like the same people who are the officers in those special forces have just been rehired into another outfit and and therefore the sort of NSARS hashtag has all like the movement itself is much more than just about that one you know particular like oppressive outfit and the, the sort of the scorecards for which the protesters are demanding, right? And so, like one of them is the one that we talked about increasing the salary. The other ones inc- include releasing releasing protesters who have been arrested, granting compensation for families of victims, and also creating an independent body to prosecute officers who offend, and then also psychological evaluation of officers before they are redeployed. Yeah, and I think what you just said there about accountability is so key. And I think definitely if we're talking about connecting what we're seeing with NSARS to what's happening with Black Lives Matter, it's the same situation there where the the police are just put on a level where it's like they're they're above the law almost. Yeah, part of that is like the bold-faced lying that um, the government is doing to cover up their tracks as well. So I think when the young man was killed, 
I think there was, the government came forward and said, this is, you know, Photoshop or something like that. There was quite a few moments where the government was covering up within official statements. And that ruins the trust between the democratically elected people in office and the people on the ground. Yeah, nice to meet you, Choma. It's nice to meet you. First thing first, if you don't mind telling us a bit about you, what you do professionally. Um, so my name is Choma. Um, my surname is Aguebo. A lot of people call me Choma Chuka. What do I do? I run a community called Techher. Techher is a learning coaching um, organization that just focuses on demystifying technology for women, wherever they might be, especially in Nigeria. And we do this across three strands. The first of them is digital literacy, which is basically upskilling women, um, opening their eyes to technology, showing them the little ways that technology can enhance their lives. And this is hinged on our theory of change, which is that if women find out the little ways that technology can enable their lives or make them a little more um, productive or efficient, they will pass that tech on to their children in the same way that they pass, you know, culture, religion, even the stereotypes that Africa is bogged down with. So that's that for digital literacy. We also have a school program. And so far, we'd reached 700 children before Corona, um, before the coronavirus kind of just locked everyone in. And we teach these kids about technology using playing cards because the schools are quite vulnerable and they don't have access um, to a lot of of tech support or even to electricity. The second strand of our work is something called community. And with this, we try to just bring women together as much as we can in the various ways that we can bring them together. The final strand is tech for governance. And it is under this strand that I believe we've done our most work. Um, And here we're either chaperoning young women who are running for office by helping them produce their posters, teaching them how to use social media, um, or even just bringing them in contact with people um, from whom they can learn things like data visualization, etc. Or we are advocating for things that we really care about. So applying technological solutions to societal problems that affect women, for instance, sexual and gender based violence. And now, of course, NSARS. So that's that's in a bit of a nutshell what I do. That sounds amazing, Choma. It sounds so such like such an uh, important organization and uh, platform to be hosting for women, for Nigerian women. Um, so it's really exciting to have that backstory. We've invited you on the show today because we know you're quite active in the NSARS movement in Nigeria. I think the consciousness around the NSARS movement has really, you know, expanded in the last sort of month or so. But it's been around for a while. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about why you became an activist and um, when and your your stories and involvement in NSARS. So I've, I've been advocating in Nigeria for one thing or the other since 2008. And I think it's, it speaks to two things. One, you know, um, the longevity of my time within activist, you know, activist spaces, but also just the share, and I'm not sure what kind of language I can use here, but just the share rubbishness of the Nigerian government, to be honest. Because if you look at some of the things we've been talking about since 2008, for instance, electricity, right? Nigeria has sunk 
um, billions and billions of naira into electricity, and we still don't have electricity, right? I joked on a call one day that I was doing, you know, I was doing like a video call, a Zoom call um, interview, and I was like, I have a rechargeable light here with me because regardless of where I live, the fear that power might go out is is real and evident. Um, so yes, been in activism spaces since 2008, always done that on the side of the work that I've been doing, um, whether I was working, you know, as a radio presenter or working for the BBC producing radio programs, whatever. Um, but then you come up to a place like 2010 and I, w- I got involved with the Enough is Enough Nigeria protests and on and on 2012 Occupy Nigeria. I was living in London at the time um, and then 2014 Bring Back Our Girls and on and on and on. 2019 was special for me because I'd done a bit of work around SGBV. We'd done some user experience testing um, for the for the nation's um, national sex offenders register. But before then, a friend of mine had reached out to me and said women were getting raped by security forces. And I'm like, you know, it sounded like rubbish. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. And so she said that security forces. Uh, some of them under the guise of, you know, reading Abuja, which is where I live, of sex workers, were going out at night, snatching women off the streets, right, whether they were sex workers or not, and then extorting them of money. They termed bail, even though in Nigeria, bail is supposed to be free. And if these vulnerable young women were unable to pay bail, they would rape them. And, um, we listened to a few stories like this. There was one particular incident where in one night they snatched about 50 to 70 women off the street. And so we marched, right? We marched to the minister's office and then we wrote letters. We wrote articles. There was so much going on. The National Human Rights Commission at the end of last year um, organized a number of hearings right um, across the country just to listen to these violations of both human rights, of dignity, etc. Did the arrests stop? Did the kidnapping stop? They reduced, but they haven't stopped in their entirety. And so when this year, um, October 4th, um, this young person in Ugeli in Delta State was assaulted by the police, etc. And my friends reached out and said, look, Chama, this is what's going on, etc. I said, we have to make a statement, right? Because the way I see these things, we have one country. I have a ton of friends who have like a second passport, etc. But for the majority of people, we have one country. Um, earlier in the year, June 5th, to be precise, um, I had convened something called the State of Emergency GBV Movement. Why? Because women were getting raped. The United Nations or I mean, UN Women in Nigeria tagged sexual and gender-based violence, the shadow pandemic, because while people were locked up at home because of you know, restrictions, etc., more women, more young girls, more boys were getting raped. I remember being called you know, to attend to a um, um, a case where a six-month-old child had been raped. And so in June, after a, a young lady was killed in, in Benin, in Edo State, in the southern part of Nigeria, we had marched to the IG's office, so this is the Inspector General of Police, and we had marched to say, you need to do your jobs. We had a five-point request to the IG of Police. So by the time October rolled around and, you know, it was like, the police is killing young people, you know, SARS, which is supposed to be the special anti-robbery squad, was killing young people. I'm just like, you know what? 
one more reason to go out on the street, but, you know, one more reason that's, that's just as important or just as serious as all the others. Um, and so we started going out in Abuja. And despite the fact that we were tear gassed, we were sprayed with hot water. We were, we had live rounds shot at us. We kept on going out and educating commuters and just the numbers kept on building, you know, um, of course, till the 20th of October when Lekki happened. Um, and this is to say, you know, very categorically that even before the shootings in Lekki, people had been killed in the course of these protests across the country, right? In Abuja, in, you know, in um, Oshun State, in Oyo State, across the country, people had been killed. So whether the government likes it or not, whether they try to gaslight people, whether they try to, as it were, erase the events of October 20th or the happenings um, within the two weeks of the protest, they happened. People died. People were injured. Um, And unfortunately, that's what this government is going to be remembered for, the NSARS protest. For those who don't know what happened in Lekki, could you briefly explain um, what that was about? Essentially, young people had been going out to various parts of the country and they would sing and they would dance and they would wave, you know, the Nigerian flags. And they would just, you know, as people would come and ask, why are you guys blocking the road? They'd tell them, you know, NSARS. Um, Lekki toll gate was symbolic um, for, for them because it, it was kind of like the, it was like a meeting point. Right. And so they would, they'd been going there every single day, you know, I think from the 12th of October or maybe even before because meetings, um, the protests had happened in other parts of Lagos as well in Alausa, which is the seat of government where the government house is located. Um, it had happened in, you know, in a few other parts of Lagos, Mushin, Agege, for instance, where the, where the musician, um, small doctor had, you know, raised like a really, really massive crowd, but they'd gone to Lekki that day. Um, the governor had announced a curfew for reasons best known to him. And then halfway through his announcement, so halfway through the day, he then says, okay, the curfew is no longer 6 PM. It's now 9 PM. Um, however, these young people were at, you know, Lekki Tollgate. They were singing, they were dancing, whatever it is. At some point during that day, somebody came and took off some cameras. Today, I'm not sure what those cameras are because the government is saying one thing. The company that manages the tolls is saying a different thing. Of course, citizens are saying a third thing. So we don't know what those cameras were. So the cameras were taken off. Um, people who were present at the at the toll gate also speak about network going off. So this is, you know, network for uh, for for calls and network for internet, etc. That's the network went off. As a matter of fact, MTN, you know, the nation's largest network carrier released an apology. I think it was later that night or the next day saying that they had some sort of challenge. So let's let's keep counting down. So the cameras were taken off, network failed, right? Across all the major networks. And then the lights at the toll gate went out. And so people started asking, you know, what's going on, what's going on? Um, and so they started singing the national anthem and they were shouting to each other, sit down, sit down, it's a peaceful protest and all of that. And then all of a sudden, they started hearing gunshots. And I say they started hearing because the military has now come out to say a number of things. One, that they were never present there. Two, that they were invited by the governor. Of course, the governor first said he's not aware that there was no there was no um, security um, um, attendance at Lekki. And then he said that the military went there, but that he didn't give the order. And then when the military now said, hang on, you invited us. Then he says, yes, they were there, but they were shooting rubber bullets. Long story short, people died. A lady called DJ Switch was on IG Live, just showing everything. I 
and everyone else, I think 150,000 people watched while young people present at the protest tried to remove a bullet from somebody's body. That person died there. We watched that person die on IG Live. We saw bodies on the floor on Instagram Live. As a matter of fact, it was after that incident that pretty much every celebrity in the world started tweeting NSARS or posting on their Instagram. A lot of them had been like speaking up about it, but I think it was just the realization that this is what's going on in 2020 in a democracy that's made everyone start posting, et cetera. Since then, of course, all sorts of stories have come up. The government has denied roundedly all sorts of things. We had the really unfortunate, you know, um, yet funny incident with, um, you know, former governor and now Minister Fashola finding a camera at the scene. Of course, the toll gate was, was burnt, but somehow this camera remained untouched, right? We've also now heard from, um, from the company managing the toll that the camera, which they said, you know, the CCTV, which they said was still on, which had the footage from the incident, they said it, um, it had a failure within a specific time. You know, so there's so much. The government has tried to, you know, um, using the tools of disinformation and trolling, try to gaslight citizens into thinking that, you know, or into believing that the day didn't happen. Of course, right after that, we saw the... Um, the looting of palliative warehouses across the country. That's now been blamed on the NSARS movement. Um, yeah, so I guess that's that's kind of where things are at the moment. I think the interesting thing is everything that's happened so far, the one thing that hasn't happened is that people haven't gotten justice. Um, someone sent me a, a story today where the Attorney General of the Federation said there isn't enough evidence against the, the NSARS officials for prosecution to go on. Now, there is, they're saying there isn't enough evidence, even though their parents speaking about their children that were murdered, even though there are people speaking about siblings and husbands and family members who were killed, even though people have proof of bank transfers that they made to so-called police officers to get their loved ones out alive. The government says there's no evidence. So, yeah, that's kind of where we are. Choma, I thank you so much for sharing all of that. You've imparted so much knowledge um, and just information about the situation, which I feel like being in London, you know, we've understood a part of it, but not the full picture. And I think what you've touched on really strongly there is just how endemic it is, not like the corruption and the problems with the police are not only around the SARS unit and what they are doing, but how that is spreading to other areas in Nigeria and in Nigerian society. And um, I think it's been really amazing how you guys have made use of obviously social media um, to push out messages and push out awareness around this. So I know you had like the Lecky massacre hashtag and also Lecky Tollgate shooting to spread that message of NSARS obviously has become a hashtag in its own right. And you also have this five for five um, hashtag, which I'd love you to explore a bit more on there, the sort of five demands of the movement that you guys are requesting from the government. Um, but I mean, initially when this whole movement sparked, Buhari was very silent when it came to responding to what was happening and the protests. And now he has spoken and now he has acted. Um, what are your thoughts about, about the way he's handling this situation and your hopes for, for reaching a resolution? Because like you say, the thing that is really missing here is a resolution. 
I think that his response, I mean, nobody was surprised by his silence. Um, this is a president who hasn't granted, so in Nigeria, they typically have something called like a media chat or a media roundtable, and presidents do this. Um, some governors do it as well. President Buhari has had one in five years. So in the whole of his first tenure, he had one. And this second tenure, he hasn't even bothered to, to speak with the press. And so even though these media engagements are typically, you know, like scripted, etc., it's still for some people the way in which they engage with their government, right? Um, so the fact that he won't even speak to people at all um, tells a lot about his presidency. Um, but then the night that he finally spoke, first of all, there was the, you know, the, the recording they put on Twitter where he acknowledged um, people's concerns, where he said, you know, SARS had been disbanded. But young people responded and said, you have disbanded SARS five times in the last five years. Forgive us for not believing you this time, right? People were saying they wanted to see some action. People were saying they wanted to see justice. There are specific officers against whom you know, complaints have been made. And these are not complaints that just revolve around extortion. These are complaints about murder, right? Mass murder. And so people were saying, we want to see a little more than we have disbanded SARS. Of course, there was no, um, there was no response to that. Instead, there were calls from all over the place trying to get us into meetings with government officials, you know, and quite a few people reached out to me and I said, look, we put out our demands on Twitter. The president responded with a video on Twitter there's nothing else that anybody needs to go into a meeting for. If I ask you to give me a cup of water, you're either giving me a cup of water or you're telling me I'm not giving you that cup of water. We don't need to have a meeting over a cup of water. If you're unable to give me the water at the time, the thing to say is, well, I don't have this water at the time, at this time. Um, do you want to wait a week? Do you want to wait a few days? Or here is how I plan to give this to you, you know? So all, all the meetings they were trying to get us into to, as it were, identify the leaders of the movement were rebuffed by people who had sense, right? And then when he finally spoke, the evening that, you know, they, they said he was going to speak live, of course, that thing was recorded with the many jump cuts and stuff like that. But anyways, he then starts to talk and his speech was far from presidential. And I say this because Nigeria is a really, really big country. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be snarky or anything, but Nigeria is a really big country. And Nigeria is almost always divided across religious lines, across ethnic lines, across regional lines, like we across political lines, right? So we take every excuse to be divided. The thing a president should do, especially when there's a national crisis, and SARS protests happened in 24 states in a 36, you know, in a 36 state nation. So that's more than half. The thing a president should do is unify the people, right? So bring people together. It's to show empathy and say, I hear you, right? A lot of times when people speak up about injustices that they have faced, they're not necessarily asking for remediation. They're asking to be heard, right? So people reaching out and people complaining, Nigerians were asking to be heard. His speech was far from presidential because it didn't give anybody any hope. As a matter of fact, his speech was threatening everybody. Right. He, what he said was almost like the fact that we responded to you guys so quickly before should not be taken as a sign of weakness. That's not presidential, not in the least. And the way we see it, his speech has empowered security forces to be even more brutal. Across social media, there are videos of policemen shooting point blank at citizens. There's a video where a politician tried to address the crowd. They refused to let him speak to them for whatever reason. He comes out of his car. He starts shooting at them. It is believed that two people died that day. If the government wanted to show any faith, 
or show any goodwill or show that they were even listening. The thing to do is to first of all arrest that guy. He's still walking free. The journalist who filmed that incident and then went on to film, you know, um, one of the warehouses where, you know, where looting was going on was arrested by the police. This young person has now turned up dead. You can't tell people that you have any plans to resolve this situation. If people are still turning up dead, people's bank accounts have now been frozen. People have been stopped from leaving the country. My friends are leaving the country. I'm starting to think if I'm safe or not, right? People are getting arrested. Yesterday, two people were arrested because you know the admin of a WhatsApp group that was planning another protest. So how are you now infiltrating WhatsApp groups and arresting people? And then in the same breath saying that you've given us five for five, there can't be any, you know, there can't be peace without justice. Families are crying out for their loved ones, right? Families, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, people are crying out for people who have been killed. And all this government is doing is, is, is show of power or show of force or trying to instill fear in the hearts of Nigerians. Forgetting that, you know, power is transient, regardless of what happens between now and 2023, 2023 is the end date. It's, it's, a, it's a very terrifying state of affairs, simply because this is happening in 2020 in a supposed democracy. The police released a statement yesterday mandating their officers to respond decisively, you know, to protect lives and property. The thing was, you know, pretty much a kill order. So they can, I mean, this is, a, this is a police unit that's already rogue. This is a police force that's already underpaid, that pretty much makes their salaries from the extortion, you know, they, they do on the streets. And you're telling them that, you know, you're giving them authority to, you know, even citing provisions of the constitution and telling them that they have the right to do this and to do that. It's an incredible state of affairs. It is really. Choma, I would like to add, I mean, from London, for example, there have been petitions um, that have, you know, come about saying that one of the ways to almost support the Nigerian people with this movement would be to ask our government to impose international trade sanctions on Nigeria. Um, I have my own doubts about how effective this would be, but what's your initial feelings about something like that? I don't think they need to import, I don't need they need to impose like trade sanctions. Um, Nigeria currently houses the most poor people in the world. As a matter of fact, the most extreme poor, right? And COVID and the lockdowns and all of those further exacerbated the poverty levels in this country. Um, so I do not believe that trade sanctions are the way to go. It will just increase the suffering, to be honest. Yeah, it will just increase the suffering. What needs to happen is to ensure that this rubbish that they're creating, that they can't leave. Because, I mean, 70, 80% of politicians in Nigeria have their kids stored in the UK, in the US, and in other Western countries, right? So part of the petitions that I've seen, I haven't seen anyone asking for trade um, restrictions or anything, but uh, most of the petitions that I've seen are asking for visa bans for politicians, are asking for frozen assets for politicians, asking for, you know... Um, deportations for their children because if you're going to set fire to a country then you know you should be here to enjoy the fire that that you you know that you're setting um and yeah that's what that's what people are asking for there's a saying that when poor people don't have anything to eat they'll eat the rich i think that we saw the first expression of that with the looting of the palliatives and i think that you know it's instructive that at least two politicians are quoted as saying that they wanted to share palliatives for their birthday it's evil. You're giving things, 
right? You're giving things by private sector to ameliorate the poverty and the suffering of people. And you keep those things in warehouses at your homes and say that you want to share them on your birthday. So like party favors, life-saving food, life-saving medicines, life-saving supplies. A good number of you know, of the foods had gone bad. That's how long that they had been kept. And this government sees no problem with that. Politicians have the gall to literally, you know, stay within their state houses of assembly and say that young people are high all the time and that if we don't have jobs, we should go and become, you know, masons and tilers and bricklayers and stuff like that. But your children are safely out of the country in jobs, with work, right? Living in countries where they have basic infrastructure. So what we need are not trade sanctions or anything like that. What we need are visa bans. What we need are, you know, are instructions from countries where Nigerians, Nigerian politicians go to hide money, freezing those assets. I'm speaking to um, the slight divide between the demographic. A lot of people mentioned how um, the people that are being targeted by SARS are young people, young, upward mobile kind of um, entrepreneurial people who are trying to start businesses or looking like they're doing well for themselves. And some of these people have said that they felt targeted by the very fact that Buhari um, replied to these demands on Twitter as if he was aware that that's where that demographic will be. Um, so I was just wondering on your perspective in terms of what's the feeling amongst the young people and I guess the middle-class young people and whether there is a kind of slight divide amongst the perceptions of the people of Nigeria. First of all, people are poor, right? I don't even know that we have a middle-class anymore. I think that it's the rich um, who are now like sliding into middle class and people who were middle class, are, of course, sliding, um, you know, within, you know, lower middle class and then, you know, poverty levels. Um, however, I still agree that there is the class of young people that are educated. So people like me um, who have some form of exposure or not. And then there's a class of Nigerians that are illiterate for whom poverty has been weaponized, right? Don't forget, we have a 50% illiteracy rate in Nigeria. We also have, at the moment, 13 million children out of school. So this is the highest in the world. And these people are, are vulnerable, right? So like I mentioned, poverty has been weaponized, which is why at the protests in Abuja, young people like us, we're giving machetes, we're giving cutlasses, we're giving knives, and they would come and they would harm people. Somebody died in Abuja from, you know, from, from stab wounds. His name is Anthony and he was 28. I watched the video where he was trying to get home with blood pouring out of his back, right? Out of his back, out of his sides. And people were telling him, sit down. And he said, no, I just want to get home. He died the next day and he's been buried. He was 28. The people who stabbed him were young people as well. Right. And if you looked at the pictures of the young people with machetes, those machetes were brand new. So almost like in the case of Rwanda, somebody purchased these weapons in bulk, gave them to young people, promised them, I don't know, 3000 naira, which is about what, five pounds um, and put them on the streets to kill other people. 
right? So, so yes, there is a divide. Um, it's one more divide. You know, it's it's the socioeconomic divide or it's the educational divide. Um, but how do young people feel? I think there's a, there's a mixture of feelings at the moment. There's a, there's first of all there's fear, um, which is you know which is not uh, which is not unfounded. There is hopelessness because people are like, what was it for? You know, what was it all for? Um, protests are guaranteed by the constitution, right? We have a constitutional right to be able to speak up, let our voices be heard, blah, blah, blah. As a matter of fact, this government came into power on, on the back of the Bring Back Our Girls protests of 2014. They rode those protests to become popular, right? And so the question is, now you're saying no one can ask any questions, no one can speak up, nobody can do this, nobody can do that. You're not going to stand for people making their voices heard or anything. So there's that feeling of hopelessness. There's also a feeling of rage. There's a feeling of disenchantment with this government. There's a feeling of, 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 of course, disillusionment, especially for people who championed, you know, this government in 2015 and 20 and even 2019. Yeah. And then there's finally a feeling of, you know, what do we do? Where do we go next? Yeah. I'd like to come back to this topic about social media. You were talking about how Instagram Live played a pivotal role in some of these stories. And also you spoke about how some people who were organizing via WhatsApp were arrested. And so it, it very much feels like a double-edged sword where on the one hand, it can really help to galvanize and organize. On the other hand, some of the platforms could be dangerous to use because of the surveillance and security issues with some of these social media platforms. As someone who works in tech, I just wonder if you had any general thoughts about that. That's an excellent question. Social media is always like a two-edged sword. Um, for the incident with the WhatsApp guys, um, we're more than certain somebody snitched as opposed to you know any fancy surveillance happening. So I just wanted to clear that up. Um, however, um, yes, we did see like social media as a bright shining light. A lot of the organizing, all the way to the several hundred lawyers um, that worked across the country to ensure that you know illegally arrested protesters were freed, um, to the food um, networks that were set up to ensure that protesters were fed across the country, um, to the of course to to being able to receive money via Bitcoin after the banks colluded with government to shut down accounts of you know protesters, but also restrict their accounts so that they could stop so that they you know they couldn't receive money anymore so yeah social media was super super helpful flip side to that was a lot of disinformation was put out via social media very carefully orchestrated disinformation in the sense that um and i'll give it i'll give a simple um you know explanation explanation about that after the lecky happened you would see a lot of government operatives, right? Or a lot of trolls um, put out information. So for instance, I would say um, X and X died or X and X was killed by the military during the protest. And then my friend or another account would then say, oh, this is fake news. And then they would publish information to the contrary. And then they'd say, and then I would come back and say, all NSAS protesters are liars. They said that this person was killed by the military, but we have now uncovered evidence that says it's a lie. Therefore, everybody else that they said was killed, that's also a lie. So there was a lot of this coming out um, as soon as Lekki happened with them, you know, with um, government functionaries and government operatives and trolls powered by government trying to discredit not only the protest, but erase the fact that people were killed. So, you know, we have that... Um, 
we have that um, about social media. The final thing on, on social media and just digital in, in its entirety is, you know, it's this recurring decimal of the government trying to legislate social media and regulate it. And of course, in the last couple of weeks or days, every government official has been saying we need to regulate it. There's a lot of fake news, there's a lot of disinformation, etc. But you have to think about the fact that currently the government is the largest purveyor of fake news. Largest. Right. Our government, they're the biggest liars, they're the biggest, you know, fake news merchants. However, seeing what happened on the 20th of October, which is now being referred to as Black Tuesday, you know, with the with the Instagram live. Also seeing the evidences, the incontrovertible evidences gathered by citizens of, you know, government collusion, for instance, with the thugs that attacked or with just, you know, the brutality by the police in the face of peaceful protests. That's what they're trying to regulate. That's what they're trying to legislate against. Not the fact that, you know, um, that young people have done anything. I guess 2020 has been quite a heavy year in terms of, because you just mentioned how protesters have also lost their lives. Earlier on in the show, I mentioned the fact that a similar case has happened in America with the Black Lives Matter movement. Justice, police officers and people who are supposed to be administering justice are the ones killing killing people and particularly black people it seems to be it really begs the question of what value are we giving to to black lives and obviously i understand nsars is a very particular situation it's very connected to towards nigeria but do you have any thoughts on globally how what this year has shown us about the way we treat the black body I don't even know if it's about the black body, to be honest. I, I, I hate to, you know, to bring those two issues together because in Nigeria, this is black people, you know, brutalizing fellow black people. As a matter of fact, sometimes it's people from the same ethnicity. Right. So it's Igbos on Igbos. It's Northerners on Northerners, you know. So I do not think that the Black Lives Matter um, situation applies here. I think that the thing in play in Nigeria is a lack of consequences. Right. It's the fact that people can do whatever the hell they want to do and there are no consequences. Somebody can kill somebody and walk away. Some people can literally do as they please. Right. I keep coming back to this thing with the politician who came out of his car. It was captured on video. He started shooting at people, not into the air, shooting at people. The fact that more than 10 days after this person has not been arrested tells you all you need to know about Nigeria. This is a politician. So this is somebody who is going to go back to these people and tell them, vote for me. The fact that he hasn't been arrested, the fact that nothing has been said about him, this is not a Black Lives Matter. Like we can't conflate both issues. It's clearly an absence or the absence of consequences wherever you go. It's the reason why we can hear, you know, we hear politicians who have looted this country blind, you know, say things like, you know, our national resources have been looted. But you're one of the thieves, but there's no consequence. I think um, obviously there's a massive Nigerian diaspora all over the globe, which is why NSAR's protests have taken place, uh, you know, certainly in London, in loads of cities all around the world. Um, for people who want to help the movement internationally, what would you advise? They need to continue putting pressure on their governments. Um, I think there's been a lot of brilliant work coming out of the UK um, with MPs, you know, raising it on the on the floors of parliament and just asking about the monies that have been spent to train the police. Um, we've seen petitions about, you know, the visa bans, etc. 
but how people can support, especially since you know protests have now been proscribed by the president in a democracy in 2020, um, it's just to continue to put pressure on their governments, put pressure on your governments to put pressure on our government because clearly this government isn't listening to Nigerians. That's the best way you can help. Thank you so much, Choma. And is there anything else you would like to add? You know, it rises and falls with pressure. It rises and falls with people being reminded um, of the rule of law and how the rule of law should be sacrosanct, um, especially in a democracy and especially in 2020. Um, and how, you know, the the harassment and, t- and intimidation of NSAS protesters is vile. Um, and then just finally about the fact that power is transient, right? Power is transient. Life is transient. Um, And we all have to answer to, you know, whoever it is that we worship at the end of the day. Thank you so much, Choma. You were so eloquent and informed and amazing to have speak to us. So thank you so much for that. Great. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for all the kind words. Most appreciated. And Choma, so just for people who will like to follow you, where, where should they go online? Um, I'm at Choma Chuka everywhere. So, yeah, at Chomachuka Everywhere. My organization is TechRNG, um, and that's TechRNG Everywhere on social as well. Rona was talking about how the situation is really different um, in different countries and the solution to the problem would then also be different. But I do think that this this whole sort of global sense that there is, that people are fighting up, especially this year and actually starting even last year with like, you know, what was happening in Hong Kong and what's happening with the Yellow Jackets protests and the clashes with the police there. I think there is just more, people are becoming more and more aware of the disproportion of what the police have in terms of their resources and the, the kind of the power and the money that's behind them. On Where on, on the other side, like the protesters, whatever they're protesting in terms of what they are able to utilize to have their voices heard or have their position reinforced it's just a really stark stark contrast and recently i was just happened to be in a place to like witness some of this unexpectedly firsthand and it wasn't it wasn't a violent clash or by any means but i was staying in berlin on a a street that one of the houses is i mean it's it's a block of flats really has been occupied for the last 30 years and there's been recently several attempts to evacuate the people who are occupying that space and the first two times were really violent um there was like you know trash trash bins lit up in flames as a wall to stop the police from coming in and stuff and the police were outnumbered by the protesters who came to support the people who were occupying the house and then this time around what happened was that everyone who lived on the street got a letter in the post that said okay between this time and this time 
we we need you to completely get rid of the cars which are parked on the street and your bicycles and we're going to cordon off the streets so that only people who can prove their residence on the street with like whether it's a rental contract or ID card can actually come in and out of the street and then on this day we're going to conduct a 24-hour evacuation of the people it was really it was really surreal because obviously the pandemic is going on in Berlin at the time. You know, there was starting to be like, okay, maybe now people can't gather more than how many people in the private setting, et cetera, et cetera. So you were feeling the kind of closing in of the pandemic on a second wave, as well as physically we were in in a flat that we could look down into the street and see that both sides of the street was closed off. And you sort of got the sense of like what was about to come. So on the day of the event itself, like the amount of police there were, there were officially 1,500 police deployed to evacuate what was 46 people, I think, from the house. Like, obviously, you can say, you can say, okay, they had all these people, um, all these police officers in case of like other protesters coming to support the movement and then being outnumbered, right? Or that like it was their experience from the past and, but there were also other things like the previous times they would try to evacuate the people. They use these like very basic ladders where they tried to get into the house via windows. Whereas on this time, which eventually was su- successful, what they brought were like, I mean, to my untrained civilian eye, it looks like military vehicles with like just the disproportion of what you have are people who are occupying a house because they're protesting the rent, uh, like just being able to afford. A reasonable rent in their city versus this 1,500 police. It was just very chilling. Like, it didn't, I don't think it matters, like, the details about how this all came about and, like, the kind of the legal, the legal case around the house and the people and who bought the house or et cetera, et cetera. It's just like visually you see that and you just feel the force of, of something so big against people who have so little or choose to live with so little. Hmm. that um yeah i i i found that like just seeing it in person also whilst the pandem- pandemic was you know still going on that like it really it really re- resonated that this kind of police um state power against ordinary people is something that's really everywhere Mm. I think it I think it definitely begs the question of what purpose are we actually asking the police to take in society? Are they there to make sure that people conform and they they can't protest? Like it seems in your particular instance, they definitely were there to do, right? But I would just be careful of I mean, because the police the, the protests in Nigeria, say for example, at like at the protest in Nigeria, people have lost their lives. I think at the moment it's 56, maybe 60 people who have lost their lives. Um, and that's the level of protest, like force the police are using against peaceful protesters. And similarly in black, in these the states, um, when we talk about black lives matter, and sometimes it's not even a been a case of, of, of numbers. It's just been about the fact that the police feel they have the right to, to use certain force uh, against people, you know, in the cases of a lot of black people, it's, it's ending up in people losing their lives, which is, I think, another thing to to mention about why internationally people have moved to speak out about NSARS. So, you know, it's not only just normal people who are trying to raise awareness about it. A lot of celebrities have lended their platforms to this, like Wizkid, Beyonce, etc., because 
they're seeing the similarities in the ways in which I would say black bodies are being treated by the police. As we've seen in Nigeria, it's not only about like white police officers treating black bodies in a certain way. It's also about black police officers feeling that they can treat black bodies in a certain way. That for me is the most harrowing, devastating thing about this. This is the fact that people are losing their lives in order just to to make a stand or to try to fight for a change. And I, I feel that also speaks to how strongly people want to hold on to the system as it is. Because, yeah, you're right. Buhari did say he would disband SARS but quite early on. But we all knew it was going to continue in a very similar way under an, another name or with a different guise. And I think people are just fed up of that, you know, just fed up of that situation. Like my story, I just not on the same scale. I think it definitely ties into what we're talking about, like with the abuse of power, what Tribe was talking about earlier, which is about thinking about actually where we distribute that wealth. But I think also it's asking us to question why we still have a police force in society anyway. Like, are they actually serving the people? We're pushing all this money into like containing civilians or restraining them, whichever way you want to see it. But are they serving the purpose they're supposed to serve? Yeah, definitely. What that experience gave me was just from seeing something that included a difference of opinion between the police and state and a certain group of people, and also a difference in resource in terms of what they actually have in behind them to deploy, really highlighted this to see that difference playing out. Big thanks again to Choma Aguebo for being on the show. You can follow her on Twitter at Choma Chuka. That's Choma, C-H-I-O-M-A, and Chuka, C-H-U-K-A. Also, for the extended version of this show, with the special NSARS audio mix from The Tribe and from DJ Coco Butter 2.0, tune in on the Third Mix Cloud or Soho Radio. Thank you for tuning in to Third Waves and stay tuned online at Third Magazine on Instagram. That's third with three eyes. I am Rona. I'm Tribe. I'm Daniela. 